Welcome to Dear Prudence. I'm your Prudence, Janae Desmond-Harris. Today, we'll be discussing letters about workplace dilemmas. What to do when you can't stop crying at the office. I've been there. Whether it makes sense to share an autism diagnosis with your team. And how to put a stop to cheek kissing with a colleague. Here to help me out is work advice columnist and consultant Allison Green, the perfect person for these questions. She writes the Ask a Manager advice column where she tackles readers' questions on workplace issues. She is also the author of Ask a Manager, How to Navigate Clueless Colleagues, Lunch-Stealing Bosses, and The Rest of Your Life at Work. Allison, thank you so much for being here. Hi, I'm so glad to be here. So before we get started, I want to give you the opportunity to give one piece of unsolicited advice, whether it's about work or just anything else you think people need to know. Sure. My uh, whole career is about unsolicited (laughs) advice. I think the big thing I always want people to know is that everything is easier in your life and in your career when you're really, really honest with yourself. Mm. And I say that because so often people send me letters, and I bet this is true for you too, Janae, where they're avoiding taking a really honest look at what they want in a situation. Mm. And sometimes it's because they feel embarrassed about what matters to them the most, or they feel like they're supposed to want something different. So my advice is to always be brutally honest with yourself, even if it's mortifying, even if it's painful, be honest with yourself about what matters to you and how much it matters and about what you can and can't change both on your own side and in other people. And I'm convinced that this has just an enormous payoff for your quality of life. Such good advice because you can go and like try to imitate someone else's path or ask a million people for advice, but you're the only one who knows what you really, really care about and what you really want. Yep. And sometimes people are making decisions based on what they think they're supposed to want and then wondering, why am I unhappy with the outcome that I'm getting? Yeah. I always say when people ask for work advice, like you are the only one who's going to have to wake up every day and sit down at that computer and do that job. Like all the people who have opinions about what you should do aren't going to be there. Yeah. So you've got to be honest with yourself about like what will make you miserable and what will make you happy. Exactly. Okay, Allison and I will dive into your questions after a short break. Can't get enough Dear Prudence? Then you should definitely join Slate Plus, Slate's membership program. You'll get to hear me answer an extra question every week just for members. With your subscription, you get ad-free listening across the Slate network and unlimited reading on the Slate site including all Dear Prudence columns, past and present. Go to slate.com forward slash prudyplus to sign up. It's just $15 for your first three months. Again, that's slate.com forward slash prudyplus. The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. I love how easy it is to use. And as a person who can be really self-conscious about making mistakes, I love that I don't have to actually talk to a real human while I'm still working on my vocabulary and my accent. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-based language-driven learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language 
in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations. Babbel's tips and tools are approachable, accessible, and rooted in real-life situations. They're delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold, plus all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash prudy. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash prudy, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash prudy. Rules and restrictions may apply. Welcome back. You're listening to Dear Prudence, and I'm here with Allison Green. We're going to get started with our first letter, which is titled Awkward Turtle. Low stakes work-related question. My former boss is a lovely man. I'm a woman. And during my COVID-related career break, we met a few times for coffee when he needed to pick my brain on a work matter. Every time we met informally, we greeted each other with a platonic cheek-to-cheek kiss, which felt natural. We live in a European country. Now I am in talks to rejoin the company. He's put me forward for a fantastic role. And I'd like to go back to shaking hands when we meet at the office during interviews, etc. How do I make this change without it being super awkward? So I just want to put out the reasons why I think this might actually be a non-issue. I think this might happen naturally. Like when you already know someone and you see them in the workplace, you typically don't really have to have any physical greeting, right? Like not even shaking hands. Um, I think it's possible that he's not going to reach for you in any way, or that he also knows that cheek kissing is not really an office thing to do. I don't know. What do you think? I agree. I, that said, I get so many letters from people whose coworkers are touching them in ways Mm. they don't welcome, that I never want to take it for granted. Mm -hmm. I will say it feels like there could be a cultural component to this too. And so I want to note I'm answering from an American perspective, and maybe there's cultural nuances that I'm going to miss. But one thing you can do if you're worried about it is to just very visibly go for the handshake before he has a chance to move in to kiss you on the cheek and just stick your hand out before anything else has happened. And sometimes that alone will make it really clear what the dynamic is going to be. But with this letter also, I'm a big believer that in some situations, trying to avoid making things awkward will just make them more awkward. And so it can be easier to just name what you're trying to do. I don't know if you need to in this case, as you point out, but if you wanted to, I mean, you could just say it. You could say, since we might be coworkers again soon, I'm just going to shake your hand. Right there in the moment or like as a warning before. (laughs) <laughs> right there, I would say right there in the moment. Now, I admittedly am not that afraid of awkwardness. So maybe that's weird. <laughs> but I think you could just say it while you're sticking your hand out. It, this actually reminded me of an old episode of your Ask a Manager podcast that you had all about awkwardness. And I laughed so hard because you talked about someone who wrote to you who'd mistakenly hugged their CEO in the elevator. When he yes. was just reaching for the button and the letter writer thought he was reaching for a hug. Um, that's yes. awkward. Now that's, that's really awkward. I don't even know how you get over this. I think this I is know. much less awkward. And yeah, I think 
I like your idea to kind of say, oh, I'm just going to shake your hand. It's sort of like um, how people quickly verbally negotiate hugs right before they happen. You know, like they'll say like, oh, I'm a hugger. Can I hug you? Or just something to kind of like announce what's going to happen. And I think if it was said once, um, it probably would take care of the issue. Now, what if somehow he misses the clue completely, takes her hand, pulls her gently in and kisses her cheek. What does she do at that point? (laughs) I think you just roll with it at that point. Anything Mm -hmm. you do to try to reset it once it's already in process (laughs) is going to make things very uncomfortable. So I think at that point you just roll with it. And then I think maybe that is a situation where you do want to try to reset it with him later if you're going to be working together and say like, hey, I don't want to have a social dynamic with you that might make other people Mm -hmm. feel awkward about our relationship. I'm going to stop kissing your cheek in the office. One thing I really appreciate about your column is that sometimes you make things simpler by giving the perspective of what a good manager would want. And that can sort of facilitate giving advice to an employee. So in this case, it sounds like um, he's her former boss. So let's say he's kind of in like a more manager type role. So what do you think from his perspective, like what would he want her to do if um, she were uncomfortable? So a good boss would want you to say something, especially because if he's a former boss and now he's considering her for this new job, I can't tell if if he would be her boss again in this position. I can't either. If they would be peers. But I suspect that there's kind of a mentor vibe because they're often mm-hmm. with an old boss. Um, so yeah, I mean, a good former boss would want you to say, hey, I'm feeling a little weird about the cheek kissing when we're going to be colleagues again. Yeah, or even I'm imagining something like, so looking forward to coming to the office. Um, like, thank you so much for the opportunity. I'm, I'm feeling nervous and just thinking through everything. And I'm thinking maybe we shouldn't, we shouldn't kiss on the cheek anymore just because things are different now. And I don't want to make it weird. Or even I don't want people to think that we have like a closer relationship than we have. Um, I don't know. There's something where I think the letter writer could frame it as like part of a package of things that she is nervous about or just trying to make sure she does right, you know? Definitely. I almost feel like the more words you devote to it, the weirder Mm. it potentially gets. (laughs) I love the idea of putting it in with a bunch of other things, Mm -hmm. sort of that overall umbrella of now that we're going to be working together again, let's talk about this. Right. So sort of like, okay, so what is the dress code there? And just checking, um, is so-and-so a good person to talk to or not? And then also I was thinking, um, maybe we shouldn't do the cheek kiss. So just kind of like throw it in on a list. Um, Like you've given advice before this is just put it somewhere in the middle, you know, like when you're doing salary negotiations and you want to ask for more money, you're supposed to mention that like, in the middle of a few other items that are less intense. And you're just being matter of fact. Your whole vibe is, of course, this isn't a big deal. Yes, I think the not a big deal vibe is um, super important for decreasing awkwardness in almost any situation. Yeah. Okay. Our next question is titled, Cry Baby Grown Up. I am a crier. It's been the bane of my existence my whole life. When I'm deeply stressed, frustrated, embarrassed, feeling vulnerable, I cry. This happens at the most awkward times. I've honestly tried everything to stop, but to no avail. Recently, I started a new job. During the interview process, the company told me they needed more senior staff to help with their client delivery. 
they didn't tell me how chaotic, disorganized, and behind the whole project is. I've worked in many high-pressure crisis response gigs, but nothing this maddening in terms of crisis meets chaos, disorganization, lack of knowledge on an ongoing basis. Most people who started with this project are working 12-hour days plus weekends. If it took a month of late nights, fine. But what I see is over a year of this kind of effort with no end in sight and no premium pay either. That is not what I signed up for. There was no notice of that. I need this job, and the company culture is a kind one. That said, I've already cried multiple times in front of my bosses due to the sheer wasted days and weeks hunting down information that would be readily available in other companies. What's the 411 on crying? It feels so humiliating to do it at work as an adult, but as I've said, I have yet to be able to break the pattern. I know there are jobs out there where I won't cry, as I've had them before. I guess I'm asking... Is it a career killer to cry a bit, or is it a sign I need to look for a new job? What is the modern response to a grown adult crying in the workforce? Unfortunately, I've never seen anyone but me do it. So, I'm someone who used to cry at work all the time. So, I'm kind of biased because I'm thinking about what that meant for me. And this was when I was a lawyer. And luckily, I was crying privately in my office because it was like the olden days when people had offices instead of open workspaces. But I tend to think that crying is either a symptom of, one, you're in the wrong job and you legitimately hate it. Um, two, you're being mistreated. Like you might be in the, in the right field and the people you work with are just unkind. Or three, you're really over-identifying with work. Like it it's all feeling way too personal to you with some exceptions. Like, of course, if your job is a medical professional or a journalist covering trauma, sad things are just going to be sad. Um, I guess I'm thinking about crying and frustration. I know, Allison, you've said in a previous column, crying can just be a normal human response. But if it becomes a regular occurrence, that can be disruptive. What is with that lens? What do you think about this dilemma? Yeah, I think first and foremost about this letter I want to say the Mm -hmm. fact that they're crying multiple times and also describing the work environment as chaotic and maddening, those are almost definitely signs that this is not a good situation for them and they should be thinking about getting out. Um, But about crying at work in general, and I'm talking here not about crying privately, um, but about crying in front of colleagues. I, I kind of hate this topic whenever it comes up and it comes up at Ask a Manager a lot because it is so human. And I hate it because... I want my answer to be able to be that it's no big deal and you don't need to worry about it. The reality in a lot of offices is that it can be a problem if it's happening repeatedly in front of other people. And I want to be really clear, we're all human and we all have human emotions and sometimes those are going to come out. And crying once, especially when you're under stress, is something you can definitely get past When it is a pattern in front of people, it can be an issue. Depending on the situations where it's happening, there's a risk that it can make your boss more reluctant to give you feedback or to give you like high pressure projects or that people will start worrying that they need to tiptoe around you. And it sucks because some people really do cry just as like a physiological response to stress or frustration. And it does not indicate that they're a delicate flower who can't handle pressure. And I would love to see the workplace make more room for that. But I also don't want to BS your 
collar and say that it won't matter because it can. Yeah, it just doesn't seem fair because two people could be feeling exactly the same. And one of them might sit there stone faced or might even smile. And the other one might be crying. And one is not less competent or more overwhelmed than the other or less capable of doing work. But I think you're right that um, it's going to make other people uncomfortable. And that's what's going to lead to problems in the workplace. Yep. People start feeling like, do they have to manage your emotional response to things? And I wish we knew what kind of crying it was because there's a difference between your eyes tearing up a little versus Mm -hmm. sobbing. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Or like having to, someone has to get you a tissue, right? And making a whole scene. Without knowing that, I wonder what, what would you say to the reader who's asking, is this a sign I need to look for a new job? I think yes, um, especially because they say they've had jobs before where they weren't crying. So they're not someone who's, whose sort of bar for tears is very, very low. Um, the fact that they've cried multiple times in front of their bosses and it seems to be coming from real frustrations with the work environment, I think it's a sign that it's not a great situation for them. So assuming they want the job search to be on their terms, meaning they don't want to be pushed out or fired or otherwise let go, is there anything they can do to make it so that this crying takes less of a toll um, on their reputation or their manager's confidence in them? I think I've heard you write before that maybe you could like ensure, ensure people that, yes, I'm crying, but it's not getting in the way of my ability to do my work. Is there anything there? Yes, absolutely. Because the big thing that you want to sort of mitigate is for people to feel like you're too delicate for the work or you're too delicate to get candid feedback. So you can say something like, please excuse me, this is embarrassing. Um, My eyes water really easily. It doesn't indicate that I don't want to hear your feedback or that this project is too much for me. So you can kind of just speak to the concern head on and assure them that it's not the worst case scenario that they might be imagining. It doesn't necessarily mean that that like wipes the slate clean for their concerns because it can be tough to be around someone who's crying. I mean, that can take an emotional toll on the people who are in the room with you. So it's not that you can just say that and then it won't matter, but it can make it better. Right. Or what about giving it a lighthearted touch, like in a non-frustrating, non-stressful moment, just saying like, well, as you all know, I'm a crier, you know, I cry if I, you know, drop my pen on the ground. It doesn't mean anything. I am torn on it. I think for some people it would work beautifully and in other, for other people or in other situations, it could potentially almost reinforce the issue. I'm Mm, not sure. mm -hmm. It's too bad because um, this person obviously cares so much about the work, right? And if they didn't care, they wouldn't be crying um, if they weren't so invested in having things work better. Um, So it's actually in some ways like a sign of just how committed they are to the job. But at the same time, I guess we have to look at reality and people are not going to read it that way. I loved your point earlier that it can be a sign that you're you're overly identifying with the job because I had a job where I was constantly crying in my office with the door closed in frustration. And that was exactly what it was. I was just way too involved and invested and my identity was too wrapped up in it. Um, so on one hand, yes, it indicates commitment and engagement and, and investment. On the other hand, I will mm-hmm. say 
as the manager of someone having that reaction, it's a tough thing to manage because you want the person to find a way to navigate stressful situations without being so affected by it. Right. So definitely, I think um, part of the prescription here is to get on LinkedIn, start networking. Um, When you do interview for new jobs, ask a lot of questions about the workplace culture and what are the most difficult things about working there so you can try to be prepared. At the same time, um, do what you can to minimize it in your current role. And as a, as a larger project, and I know this is like more of a job for therapy, um, see if you can sort of detach a little bit from the tasks you do every day at work and find a way to remind yourself that they don't define you and what's frustrating at work um, doesn't mean that you're a failure as a person. Yeah, absolutely. And one tip I always give people for, because people are like, that sounds easy in theory, but how do I actually detach in real life? So when I started working for myself as a consultant mm. and I was no longer an employee of the organizations I was working with, I was coming in from the outside. I found it so much easier to be detached. You don't get invested in the same way. And so I always tell people, if you can try to think of yourself as a consultant, you're the organization you're working for is buying your time and your expertise and your advice. But ultimately, it's up to them what they do with your advice and and more broadly. And it doesn't need to be something that you have your entire self invested in. And sometimes if you can look at it like that, I'm just here as a consultant, it can make it easier. I love that idea. And it reminds me that um, bringing it back to my crying at work days, when I decided to leave my law firm, And it was a a year-long process of beginning to do some freelance writing and starting to change my lifestyle so I could afford to do so. Once I had a foot out the door and a date that I knew I was leaving, um, everything became so much less stressful. I wasn't upset anymore. And I actually started doing better work because I was less sort of like immobilized by stress and terror all the time. Yes. So I, re- I really like the idea of trying to um, find some way to detach. And I think thinking of yourself as a consultant and or someone who is just there temporarily because you're lining up another plan might really, really help. Yeah, you're just passing through. Yeah, your job is never easier or more delightful than like the week after you give your notice, you know? Yes. <laughs> and you're like, oh, it wasn't that bad after all, was it? These people are kind of great. You're listening to The Dear Prudence Show, and when we come back, we'll be reading more of your letters. Stay with us. Adultish is back. And this season, we're talking about standing up and learning how to take a stand for issues on the minds of young people, like book bans. The book banning side. They have an incredibly well-oiled machine. Filling in food deserts. We have three community colleges where we either provide food boxes or an actual operating farmer's market. And what's affecting young people's mental and emotional health. Pressures of school, friendships from romantic relationships, pressures from family. New episodes of Adultish from YR Media drop every Thursday, so subscribe wherever you're listening now. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. 
Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome back to Dear Prudence. I'm here with my guest, Allison, to answer your letters. And the next one is titled, Hiding in Plain Sight. Ten years ago, at the age of 26, I was diagnosed with high-functioning Asperger's. A lifetime of being a high-strung overachiever, struggling with social cues, eye contact, and other things suddenly made so much more sense. My family has been very supportive, as have the few friends I've told. I don't require significant accommodations, but it helps explain some of my more awkward behaviors, and most people have become far more understanding, which I'm grateful for. I recently started a new job where I'm responsible for a team of about 10 people, most of whom are anywhere from 5 to 10 years younger than me. I'm wondering if I should share my diagnosis so that my team will have a better understanding of my personality and managing style, as well as some of my other quirks like a major dislike for physical contact. I have had other people in previous workplaces deny that I'm on the spectrum, saying how normal I seem, and there's no way. Let's just say I've made masking it into an art form over the years, which is incredibly stressful and exhausting. Instead of having to read every single interaction, analyze how I should respond, and then execute the socially acceptable action, I can just react, which makes my mental load significantly lighter. It might be awkward or a little stilted, but it is much easier for me. The only people who currently know at work are HR director and my director supervisor. Should I tell my team or keep it to myself? So, Allison, you've answered a letter before from someone uh, who said, my coworkers talk to me like I'm a child, and it's because of my autism. And that's a little different from what the letter writer here was worried about. But it just goes to show that um, there really can be real consequences to people being aware of a diagnosis like this and sort of bringing all their own their own biases to the workplace and putting them on you. Yeah, I think this is so tricky. I like that the person is asking about telling people they manage because usually I hear from people who are wondering whether to disclose to their boss. And that can be mm-hmm. trickier in a lot of ways because as you say, there can still be a stigma and disclosing to people who have power over you can end up biting you in ways that you you don't anticipate at the start. This person has already disclosed to their employer and the question is about disclosing to their team. So I don't know. I could almost argue this from both sides. On one hand, as a manager, they're in a position to model a healthy approach to neurodivergence and inclusivity to their team and probably to make their staff members a lot more comfortable if they themselves ever need to disclose things of their own or ask for accommodations. And there can be real benefits to that sort of openness, plus the advantages to them of not having to mask at work and helping their team better understand how to work with them. On the other hand, there's all the usual issues with disclosing stigma and bias, and it can make people treat you differently. But I don't know. I mean, this person is the manager, and so they're in a position of some power. I don't think there is an easy answer, but I do think they're in a safer position if they decide they want to than if they weren't the person in charge of their team. I'm going to come out strongly on the side of not telling. 
And here's why. Um, it sounds like the letter writer is still feels very sensitive about the way people have reacted to this. Um, so I'm, I'm not worried about them being discriminated against or losing their job or not getting good assignments. Like you said, they're a manager. So those things are not an issue. But I can imagine that if the letter writer told the team and an employee or two said, oh, you, really, I wouldn't have guessed or you don't seem like other autistic people or wow, are you sure? Um, those things would be deeply, deeply annoying, offensive and upsetting. And then I'm not sure kind of what the recourse would be at that point. That's interesting. I th- There's potentially some recourse because they're the manager. They have the spending mm, to mm-hmm. say, hey, here's how we should talk about this and how we shouldn't talk about it. On the other hand, now you're using some of your capital at work on something you probably didn't want to use your capital on. So I don't know. I mean, I think it's possible you could handle that if it happened. But, or you know, how about this? I think that, um, given that they're they're tired of people saying, you know, you don't seem like you have autism or denying it, maybe that sort of needs to be addressed in the initial announcement, right? So it's you know, I don't know, would this be an email, a one on one conversation, a team meeting? I'm not sure, but maybe it would just be, you know, there's something I wanted to share. This is my diagnosis. And interestingly, a a lot of people through life, you know, have been surprised by this or even challenged it. Um, That's been troubling to me, but it is true. Um, This is who I am and just wanted you guys to know that it might affect the way I work in X, Y, Z ways. So sort of like get ahead of the potential pushback, which I think would be really upsetting to them. Yeah, I like that. And I also think pair it with some very concrete, actionable things. so like what that means for my work is X and not Y, and it will help me if you do A, but not B so that people mm-hmm. have some context for why you're sharing it. And they're not left thinking, okay, what does this mean for me? What does it mean for our relationship? Because when you leave it open-ended, people tend to decide on their own what, what actions they should take and they won't necessarily be the actions you want them to take. So if you can give them like just like three specific things that they should do differently or that like things they might notice that would be helpful for them to have context for, then I think you're putting it in a context that will make sense to people. Okay. I think that works for me. Um, and just quickly, what do you think? One-on-one conversations, email or in-person or Zoom meeting with everyone? I wouldn't do email. I might do group meeting if it's a small team. I might do one-on-one otherwise. Um, If it's a big team, I think that's maybe just a strange topic for a group meeting and better suited to one-on-one. Okay, great advice. This is Dear Prudence. We need to take a break, but when we come back, more letters from you and advice from us. Stay tuned. On Death, Sex, and Money, we feature interviews with you, our community of listeners, getting honest about uncomfortable things. I developed an illness where it isn't safe for me to drive. A friend once said to me, sex is like air. You don't think about it until you're not getting enough. This is a similar sort of thing if you just replace sex with driving. Listen to Death, Sex, and Money wherever you get podcasts.
I'm Janae, and you're listening to Dear Prudence. Allison and I are going to tackle our last question for the day. This letter is titled, Feels Icky. I've moved often in adulthood, but I work hard to maintain friendships across the distance. My friend Samantha is one such friend. We live seven hours apart now, but our friendship has persisted across the decade. We're not besties, but we still are close. She hinted that she met someone in late 2021, but was very private about the details to me and our mutual friends. Samantha was recovering from a very private, messy breakup at the time, so I didn't push, and neither did anyone else. She's always been someone who keeps her romantic life private, even when we were teenagers. This year, she got a new job and announced he was moving in with her, and he was her 56-year-old former boss at her old job. She was 23 when she started working there and is 27 now. So it's not like she was underage, but the power differential combined with the age gap feels creepy. She's high-performing in a field where women are uncommon and has often complained about having to be one of the boys and ignore uncomfortable things. The whole thing feels really questionable. I will be in the area for work next week, and she told me that they're getting ready to close on a house together, and she wants me to come see it. I will also be meeting him. Can I say anything to her privately? If so, what? I know her local friends are concerned, but I don't want to make it something other people are drawn into and would like to keep it one-on-one. So if I had to give a a two-sentence answer to this question, it would be, she's an adult, mind your own business. But I just thought this would be fun to talk about with you because of the workplace romance issue. Um, It's pretty clear this woman was in her 20s and was dating a man in his mid-50s. And I think we can guess it was happening while she worked for him. How much of your inbox is, is full of dilemmas around this kind of thing? An enormous portion, <laughs> um, often from the coworkers of the people who are involved, which is a whole different thing. But I mean, in this case, I think it's way too late to say anything. Plus, they're adults and it's really no one's business. But they've been together for years and they're buying a house together. <laughs> I mean, even if there mm. had been an opportunity to say something earlier... There's definitely not at this point so far into the relationship. Right. It's not like the letter writer is going to be like, can we sit down and talk? Um, I'm really concerned that you were dating your boss and he's so much older. And her friend is going to go, oh, my gosh, thanks for raising that. Let's call the realtor and call off the sale and let me break up with him. That's just I mean, it's not how life works. It doesn't happen. No. Now, I will say if she still worked for him now, I do think that Mm -hmm. would be different because it would be such an abuse of power on his side and risky for her in a whole bunch of ways. But it doesn't sound like they work together. They've been together for years. The window for raising any concerns about that aspect of it just is not open anymore. Right. And to be clear, I don't think this relationship reflects very well on him because like you said, it was an abuse of power, um, a common kind of abuse of power, but still an abuse. Just going going back to if they were still in the workplace, you said you you often get letters from the coworkers of people who are in these kind of relationships. What kind of a toll does it take on on the other people who are in this situation when someone's dating in the workplace in this way? If they're dating someone like their boss or someone above them in their chain of command, it can be really upsetting for other people because 
Well, a whole a whole range of things. I mean, mm-hmm. when people worry about favoritism, you know, if that person gets promoted, did they get promoted on their own merits? If they get the better projects or the best days off, is it because of the relationship? So people have all the obvious worries about bias and favoritism. Mm-hmm. But some people quite rightly also worry about that abuse of power. I tend to see this concern from women more than men. I don't know if I've ever, literally ever had a man write to me concerned about uh, this being an abuse of power. But women tend to have a much more nuanced understanding of that um, and and worry about what does it mean for their coworker and what does it mean about their boss and what does it mean about their employer that they're either fine with this happening or they're turning a blind eye to it. Mm-hmm. I wonder, um, the letter writer says her friend is in a high performing field where women are uncommon. And I assume she's still working in the field. Is there a possibility that her reputation would take a hit or this could negatively affect her um, sort of in the larger industry she works in? Yeah. I mean, it sucks that this is the reality of it, but you often will have people assume that she got where she got because of her relationship with this guy as opposed to her own accomplishments. Um I mean, the flip side of that, if we're being realistic about it, is that sometimes it opens doors too. So there, I mean, there is that, but but it sucks to have people questioning your expertise and your abilities just because of who you're dating. Yeah. So I think to the letter writer, I would say, um, you're right. You probably have reason to be concerned about the relationship that was taking place and it's the potential effects it had. Um, on your friend when she was still in the workplace with this guy. Um, It kind of calls his character into question a bit. I think that's fair to say. And yeah, people are going to be judging. But at the same time, the best idea is to keep your mouth completely shut because none of that is really your business. And here's where I switch from workplace advice to personal advice. There's no way in hell she's going to listen to you. Yeah. Those are all the questions we have for this week. It's been fun and hopefully helpful. Thank you, Allison. Thank you so much for having me. If you'd like to hear more of Allison's great workplace advice, look for her columns at askamanager.org and follow her on Twitter at askamanager. Do you need help getting along with partners, relatives, coworkers, and people in general? Write to me. Go to slate.com forward slash prudy. That's slate.com forward slash P-R-U-D-I-E. The Dear Prudence column publishes every Thursday. If you'd like to hear your question answered on the podcast, we are looking for letter writers who would be comfortable recording their questions for the show. You can stay anonymous. Dear Prudence is produced by Sierra Spragley-Ricks with a special thanks to Maura Curry. Editorial help from Paula de Verona. Daisy Rosario is Senior Supervising Producer, and Alicia Montgomery is Slate's VP of Audio. I'm your dear Prudence, Janae Desmond-Harris. Until next time!